distant review. Um, I'm following the introduction to the book After Philosophy, edited by Baines, Pullman, and McCarthy. Um, pretty closely following, so these, a lot of these ideas are theirs. Um, I'm just elaborating on them, giving my own. But um, one thing that's an interesting point they bring up is that the title of the book, After Philosophy, is I believe, deliberately ambiguous. That is, one way of understanding the title is, After Philosophy, what? And then another way of understanding it is as a kind of philosophy. It's called after philosophy, like post-critical philosophy. What kind of philosophy are you doing? Doing after philosophy. Yeah, after what? Well, after the crisis was made explicit. So um, I think that might help you understand some of the issues we're going to talk about in the second half. Um, responses on the part of the contributors to this volume to the crisis. So uh, just as a reminder, I. I introduced the crisis in philosophy in general in a kind of historical perspective, and then we went through uh, four different disputes that the editors identified as a way to see this crisis appearing um, and in philosophy and contrasting pre-critical, pre-crisis views on each of those four topics with uh, the post-critical view. And now what I'd like to do is look at some of the ways in which the contributors to the volume respond to the crisis. So what are the different ways you can respond to this crisis? Well, one way of doing of responding, there are these, I believe there are these three parts, these numbers on the right, correspond to the, the three parts of the book. Um, so the three parts of the book are um, the end of philosophy, the transformation of philosophy, systematic proposals, and the transformation of philosophy hermeneutics, rhetoric, and narrative. So this is the first response, the end of philosophy. You could see that Rorty and Derrida would fall into this class. Um, it's the idea that given that philosophy is assuming all those pre-critical things, that, uh, an authoritative subject that, produce, that uh, proceeds rationally in an absolute way and produces certain items of knowledge, just to backdrop some of the um, aspects that we saw. Given that that's what philosophy is, really we have to just give up on philosophy. We have to do something else. And um, intellectual life will, and attempts to understand the self and world will be done in a different way. Uh, be done in a way that explicitly you know, uses different methods, explicitly acknowledges uh, the role of interpretation, and rhetoric and text. And we should really stop trying to do this philosophy that really cannot reveal um, uh, enlightenment of the world. But fortunately for philosophers, that isn't the only option that's being investigated in this uh, volume. There are the rest of the other two sections are saying, well, no, there can be a kind of philosophy. But it's got to be, it's got to be changed. It's got to take into account the, the crisis and somehow transform itself to be more relevant to our, our, our current understanding of ourselves. So in part two, you have a couple different ideas about what philosophy has to be transformed into. Uh, Davidson and Dummett are the most conservative, I would say, of the philosophers here. They're still considered mainstream analytic philosophers. Nobody would, nobody in a traditional analytic philosophy department, uh, bad, uh, 
an eyelash uh, if uh, you had Davidson and Dummett on the syllabus. Matter of fact, they'd be surprised if you didn't, in especially in philosophy of language. Um, but Davidson and Dummett and Putnam, another uh, philosopher who at least for part of his um, part of his work is seen as being straightforwardly traditional uh, Anglo-American and uh, philosophy. Those, those three philosophers are nevertheless in the book and are meant to be expressing in a perspective that uh, allows philosophy to continue, but only if you make some kind of change, only if you place emphasis on a theory of meaning. So you give an account of how language works, and you're going to use that to constrain how you do philosophy. And so there will be constraints on philosophy, and there will be a new understanding of how philosophy proceeds because you've taken uh, this uh, linguistic turn seriously in how you do philosophy. In Dummett's case, he inverts the normal, the usual ordering, uh, which is that the world comes first, metaphysics comes first, what exists is comes first, and then language, or understanding of language follows. He thinks, instead, you come up with a theory of meaning for your language first, and that will tell you about what exists and what doesn't exist. So he inverts the order. It's quite a practical move, um, just to give one example. Um, in part two, there's also an idea that uh, philosophy has to become more of a social inquiry. It has to be um, involving uh, culture more directly. And that's uh, the position represented by Tavernas. In part three, the idea that what uh, the way philosophy, the idea is that philosophy should be transformed into uh, a, I don't want to say a science, uh, but a, the, the, the understanding of interpretation and the application of interpretation. So hermeneutics is uh, an investigation into what it is to interpret and how interpretation plays a role in our understanding ourselves and knowledge of the world and reason. And that, that's the position represented in this volume by Gadamer and Foucault. And also in part three, we have uh, what I know least about these, um, the idea that philosophy should be continued but transformed into a historiography. So the emphasis here is on um, the historical development of ideas and interrelation between them. Um, and a rejection of the idea that somehow ideas can be understood independently of their historical uh, role, uh, but rather the, their main contribution is in the role they're playing in a particular historical setting. But again, I, I, uh, I personally know at least about that virtual what the role is, so um, Now, it could be that there are other responses. Uh, you can include everything in the volume, and one might think that uh, you could continue. You could have the view that philosophy does continue, but it doesn't have to be transformed. You can still use primarily the same methods um, as before, but using those methods to try and respond to the crisis somehow. Um, now, this book is focusing just on the all the philosophers have taken a linguistic turn. Uh, they all have, even the end of philosophy folks, there's something in common with these other philosophy continues uh, but transformed uh, folks in that the emphasis is placed on language. But you could 
uh, try to, maybe if you're a naturalistic philosopher, more in connection with the, the cognitive sciences, say, or artificial intelligence or something like that, try to see uh, the cognitive basis of philosophy and understand uh, maybe philosophy in a, in a unify um, your philosophical approach with what can be understood about the philosophical process through the sciences. Maybe there, maybe there are other strategies. I don't think the editors think that this is an exhaustive uh, set of ways to apply to, to, to reply to the crisis of philosophy. It's just the ones that there is a nice set here of all uh, all the philosophers who are taking the linguistic turn. So now you know why the subtitle of the book is um, "End or Transformation?" with a question mark. It's looking at uh, there is a crisis, do we, do, does that mean we give up on philosophy or can we transform it in some way? Now, I've said a bit about these different responses, but the, the editors help us out by looking at some particular issues that you can use to di differentiate the different responses from each other. How, these issues, how, how the different responses stand on each of these issues helps define um, what's particular to them. So the, uh, the editors look at these issues in order to separate out for you the different responses that are being looked at in the book. Um, there's a, the, different, the issue of the role of truth and conceptual schemes, ways of thinking of the world, ways of conceptualizing the world. There's the issue about what happens to the subject, what role does interpretation play in philosophy. There is the issue of how seriously are we to take the politics of language into our understanding of philosophy. That point I made before about uh, power relationships coming into philosophy. Um, do we take that seriously and, and uh, respond to that, or do we, as has been done in the past, kind of ignore that, or, or if we try, if we, if we don't ignore it, if we try to um, take some stand on it, it's considered to be outside of philosophy itself and more something to do with uh, course administration or, or um, being a good person in general. Um, do we what role does rhetoric and the non-literal, figurative, poetic aspects of language, what role is that going to play explicitly in philosophy? Is that role going to be acknowledged? Is it going to be minimized? Is it going to be attempted to be applied in a, in a more um, active way? That's an, an issue which divides the responses. And theory. Can there be a systematic philosophy? Can philosophy be theoretical, or does it have to be just a, a set of um, particular insights that can't be collected together into a general systematic theory. So let's look at these in a little more detail, just to give you an idea of these different responses. Um, for instance, take the, the role of truth in philosophy, and take Putnam as an example of one stance we could take on this issue. Now, Putnam agrees that uh, he's a post Philosopher, and that he, he agrees that reason is always culture and language dependent, and the norms of what is to count as reasonable will be uh, dependent on uh, the particular culture and language you're using, that culture and language you're using. Um, however, he still thinks that there's an idea of rationality um, which is independent of culture and language and can't be used to critique our own traditions. So, uh, uh, a dangerous or unproductive or, or 
trivializing relativism is avoided. That is, there is a kind of relativism in that reason, as we say, is dependent on culture and language, but there's some ideal which we can use to uh, at least critique ourselves. So if we have that ideal, then that can help us save the notion of truth that sometimes seems to uh, be under threat of elimination when one accepts any kind of relativism at all. You say, well, then how can we talk about it? What's the point of having this notion of truth if it's always relative to any particular situation? We can't communicate. We can't disagree even because you say, I, I, say, I say we have free will. You say... We don't have free will, and we say, well, we're both right, because when I say free will, I mean, you know, I mean it in this context to me, and you're saying we don't have free will, well, that's true for you. We can't have a discussion in the sense of resolving an issue, we just say, yeah, we're both right, and we go back, and, you know, that, there's a shallowness that can result if you don't, you, if you don't have a, a, a sophisticated notion of relativism. So that's what Putnam's trying to do. He's trying to have a sophisticated notion of relativism that allows us to recognize some of the post-critical points about um, reason, and yet save truth, because truth can be understood to be what would be accepted under such ideally rational conditions. That's what truth is. And then you can understand how we fail to meet that ideal, and therefore we fail to say true things or think true thoughts, because uh, the norms that we're using, although appropriate for our culture, fail, fall short of those ideal norms. So that's, I can't expect you to understand that, you know, uh, in detail without having read this paper and without having a whole lecture on that, just to give you a flavor for how people aren't just saying, okay, all the post-critical stuff is true and therefore we throw out everything that went before. No. There are some changes that have to be made, but if we can do so, we can still have a legal communication and some kind of rational uh, discourse, um, even under this modified view of what reason and knowledge and so on. Take conceptual schemes as another uh, example. Um, so one could say that, look, it's, uh, yeah, the, the post-critical view is right. Language and meaning are, are context-bound. They don't hold absolutely, but what something means depends on the situation. Of course, um, the truth of, well, what, what, what language expresses is relative to, uh, dependent upon the culture that uses the language. Um, and also, maybe even the way, you know, the way that you live, the way that you're embodied in, uh, in the world, uh, that somehow plays a role in determining meaning um, and what you mean when you speak. And, and this idea of the linguistic game, maybe going to Wittgenstein, the idea that there are different um, ways of using uh, language and depending on which game you're playing or which way of using language you're engaging in, something will mean something different than if you were using it in a different linguistic game context. Uh, meaning is use is the slogan for the shrine. How language is being used plays with is the crucial determinant for me. But the idea here is this uh, on the one hand, on the other hand approach is that it might be that that is so, and yet, <clears throat> despite what some people have thought, it might not follow that the ways of looking, the different ways of looking at the world are incommensurable. What incommensurable means is not comparable, not 
uh, able to be related to each other in a way that allows you to see whether there's agreement or disagreement. So this is a moderate position being represented by Gadamer, McIntyre, and Habermas. This kind of relativism needn't result in the end of dialogue between the groups. And this is important you know, for our world, especially you know, in, in the events um, that we're facing now, completely different cultures looking at the world in very different ways. It's very important that there be some basis for uh, communication and discussion, and yet um, the previous, maybe previous views about how that could be possible are, are inappropriate or unhelpful. For instance, in a, maybe an imperialist, objectivist approach. Well, the way we're going to have a discourse is we are going to impose on you the basis for rationality and discussion and the norms of rationality, and you either accept them or you don't. And if you accept them, then we can have a discourse. There has to be some other way, we hope, of finding, uh, allowing for disagreements about uh, what rational means, what, uh, what reason is, what knowledge is, and yet some ability to compare and have a resolution of conflicts. I don't mean to be you know, overly optimistic here. I'm not saying this book is going to uh, save the world. Um, but yeah, at least we need to look at the issue and see if there are ways of moving forward. Go um, to be even stronger. You could think of Davidson, not necessarily his contribution in this book, but in um, in a paper called uh, I think it's called the very idea of a conceptual scheme. In that paper. He argues that really there can't be multiple conceptual schemes. It looks like there could be. It seems that you could easily make sense of one group of people looking at the world one way, another group of people looking at the world another way, and they might not uh, line up with each other and they might be incommensurable. But Davidson uses a post-critical view in order to prevent that kind of radical result that's normally thought of as being as the unavoidable consequence of post-criticality. So what he does is he says, well, look, um, this is very rough, and I'm sure it's inaccurate, but just to give you a flavor for how you might do this, he says, uh, yeah, reasoning is context-bound, is limited. Um, I can only really make sense of what I can make sense of. I can only understand something as being possible if I can understand it to be possible. There's no idea of things being true independently of my ability to understand them as being true. If that's your view, then you, you really can't accept the picture that I just sketched a second ago of there being one culture here and a, that has one way of proceeding and way of conceptualizing the world and another culture over here that has a different way of conceptualizing the world and the two don't match. Because what are you doing in that situation? You are putting yourself as kind of like a god figure looking down on these two groups and you can understand that group and understand it to be a rational, reason, reasonable group within its own context and then over here, you look at a different group, and you understand that as being a rational group, uh, engaging in its diff own different practices, and then you see that the, the third part of the triangle, the third line in the triangle, doesn't, doesn't connect. There's a mismatch. But that means you are the re resolution between the two. That means there's a position somewhere, your position, that can see that A is being reasonable, can see B is being reasonable in their own context, and so therefore you are the the thing that denies the incommensurability. You are the, the fact that you can do that, the fact that you can conceive of that, means that A and B can communicate somehow to each other through your position. If, on the other hand, they really cannot, if there's no point of view 
that allows A and B to both be understood as being rational, rational in their own way, then that means you can't take any position like that. You can't conceive of a situation in which um, you can understand A as being rational and B as being rational, and yet A being not being permissible in some way. So it's a very uh, powerful way of using the post-critical view, this kind of anti-realism, the idea that there aren't uh, meaning has to always be within the context of some uh, subject understanding. Uh, in other words, there is no, nothing is true absolutely, but is only true um, if it can be understood by a subject. Once you take that view and apply it to the relativism position, you see that the worry that some people have about this incommensurability resulting can never actually occur. Well, maybe it's too, um, too tricky, too uh, sophisticated a response. Maybe the actual problems in the world still remain even after you dissolve them this way. But I think it's worth um, seeing that some, sometimes, in the way I suggested in the last lecture, the post-critical view uh, limits itself and stops its most extreme implications from being realized. Now, another way that you can see how the different responses, different, different responses um, uh, apply to the question, the crisis in philosophy is how they deal with the, the subject. What's going to happen to the subject that we've seen as problems uh, on the traditional pre-critical view? Well, one response, one way of responding is to say, we've got to completely recast our idea of the subject. We need to think again about what a subject is. We need to see subjects as limited, situated, engaged, essentially. And that position is represented by Ricoeur, Bloomberg, and Gadamer in this book. But a different view is actually more pessimistic in some ways. Um, I, I mentioned the, the, the course being terrifying in a way, but it can also be liberating as well. Some, sometimes you can find that the end of the subject finally releases you from all these impossible obligations, um, or it frees you to think about the world in a, in, a, in a new way, rather than trying to make sense of this, uh, this view that might be thought to be broken. Okay, so this other, other approach says, look, we can't recast our notion of the self. It's just a flawed concept. It just, it needs to be, it's time to move on. This is the idea of the death of the subject. There is nothing there that can be better understood. It was a fiction at best, and you can't have a better understanding of that, understanding of that fiction. You can understand how people created the fiction, or why they found it useful, or the ways in which their, that, that notion of the self was incoherent, or had some local coherency, but you can't actually replace it with, okay, now I'm going to have a, a, a non-fragmented, or I'm going I'm to have a different notion of the self that won't have all these problems and inconsistencies. That's just to engage on this view. That's just to make the same mistake over again, and think that the subject has to have all those issues resolved, and we can have an unproblematic self in its place. No, there's, this, is a, this is all you get, and it really doesn't, it, it's even not really a thing anyway. So, this is um, maybe a more radical, well, this is a more radical view, and, um, and ask us to get rid of the self, get rid of the subject, and uh, do philosophy differently. What I'll, what I'll do is just as, uh, we can end a few minutes early, but, I'll just give you one more example that I find 
uh, pretty compelling or an interesting empirical example of the threat to the traditional notion of the subject. Um, now, what, what's, well, I'll just tell you what it is. It's the split brain studies made famous by Gizaniga. Uh, um, so, I don't know how much neurophysiology you've been taught, but you certainly know that there are two hemispheres and they're connected by the corpus callosum and the, the, they communicate that way. And there is a, a lateralization, as they say, of certain functions. Certain functions seem to be mainly occurring in one hemisphere as opposed to another. And so, you can get interesting results when you study people who have had a commissurotomy. That is, they've had their corpus callosum severed because of certain, usually, I, think, I believe, it's because of, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, you know about this study, great. It's a, it's a response to uh, certain cases of epilepsy, epilepsy um, that can only be uh, addressed if you split the corpus callosum and prevent global activity occurring. So, the people who've had this procedure made on them, and they can function in society, I mean, they, they, they have uh, certain impairments, but uh, they, they, they still can function. But function in a different way. Um, so, do you know these cases about um, this is the kind of case where you, you give a um, an A colossate patient, someone without a corpus callosum or severed, you give them um, two different pictures and you arrange it so that uh, each of the pictures is only going to one of the hemispheres. So you arrange it so that uh, the hemisphere that uh, usually deals with language, linguistic output, uh, is seeing, let's say, uh, a picture of a a picture of a, uh, a chicken. And the other hemisphere is instead seeing a picture of a snowy scene. So the snow falling outside a house. Now, you ask the subject to pick with the hand that's connected to the part of the brain that is seeing the snowy scene and not the hand that's connected to the linguistic half of the brain. Uh, you know, on that sort of that part of the body, on that side of the body. You ask them to use that hand to pick one of several uh, pictures to go with what they're seeing. And so now this hand, which is under the control, roughly, if I can speak in these coarse ways, of uh, this hand, which is under the control of the hemisphere that's seeing the snowy scene, picks a shovel. There might be a ball, a shovel, an egg and something else, a car. Uh, so it picks the shovel. Now, you and I know why it picks the shovel, because it sees a snowy scene, and so that man picks the shovel, it's appropriate for the snowy scene. But now you ask the subject, of course, the, the linguistic part of the subject, to answer a question, say, oh, why did you pick the shovel? And that, the subject will, will uh, confabulate, I think is the word, will invent a reason for having to make the shovel. So the subject will say, well, I saw a chicken, and you keep chickens in a chicken house, and you need a shovel to shovel all the 
yeah. waste, let's say, to be, to be different. I don't want to say any other words. So, yeah, the waste in a, in a chicken shed, uh, so that's why I chose the shovel. And now, now it's true, these are pathological uh, subjects who don't have a corpus callosum, and so you could just say, oh, well, that's, isn't that all? But it somehow rings true that maybe we're like this, that maybe we are authoritative, we authoritatively, apparently authoritatively say, well, this is why I did this, and this is why I believe that. But really, the real story, somebody else looking at us could have a better account of why we did what we did than we do from within. So the self isn't transparent, the self is not autonomous, the self is not authoritative. A lot of those pre-critical views can be rejected just by looking at this one example. And if you want to go further, you can look at the attribution theory studies of Nisbet and Ross. It would take me a little bit longer to um, give the actual data and the experiments set up, but just to get to the conclusion, they basically found that when they um, uh, gave people a certain kind of drug and told them a story about what it would do to them, the people under certain conditions, uh, we, the, the people who conducted the experiment, experiment knew why the people weren't getting much sleep that night, but, uh, and it had to do with the fact that they were given a drug and then told, that, told lies about what it would do. Um, but the people who actually didn't sleep well would just make up stuff. They'd say, oh, I didn't get much sleep because uh, I, I, I never get much sleep actually around this time of the month. Or, oh, yeah, I've got this um, big project coming up and that must have been it. I just couldn't get it. They're just, they, they, because they don't have access to the real facts that we know controls whether or not um, they're, they're going to uh, be, uh, be able to get to sleep, uh, they invent the story and they think that that's the true reason why. And they, they'll say, yeah, that's why I can get sleep, but we know what the real story is. I can give example after example, I mean, probably is, is now almost a commonplace in our society that, that you know, we can predict which product uh, a subject will choose. If we play German music in the supermarket and we put them in an aisle full of wines from different countries, it's true that they will be more likely to choose German wine, and they won't say, oh, it's because you were playing German music that I chose the German wine, because that, that makes them just an automaton. They don't want to think that, that they just choose whatever wine they hear the music of. No, they'll say, oh, you know, I've been meaning to try uh, this German wine, and oh, the, the, this one seemed to be, uh, instead of the label, you know, they'll just be wrong about it. Or um, another one, I mean, there, there are lots of examples. So the point is that uh, empirical studies can be used to help us reevaluate prompt us to reevaluate our, our notion of self. Um, and I think that can be a, a, a very exciting challenge to, for philosophy to come up with a new notion of self if possible in the light of its career.